Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are continuing right along in this seven-part series. We are now in part six of seven parts. And as always, I want to announce if we have any newcomers, uh, either on the telephone or on the Internet, uh, all of the previous messages are recorded and they're on our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And all of the notes are also available there for download. If you are following along in those notes, we've come to about page 123, 124, somewhere in there. And I'll give a quick review before we begin into new material tonight. We are looking at the whole story of Israel coming out of Egypt and traveling into the Promised Land. Um, God is a God of purpose. He doesn't do anything without purpose. And the whole story of Israel going down into Egypt, being there in slavery for 400 years, coming out through the Passover lamb, traveling through the wilderness, and entering into the land of Canaan, it was all planned by God long before any of the events began. And one inkling that we saw into that is that way back in the time of Abraham, God revealed to Abraham bits and pieces of the plan, that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land, for 400 years, they would then come out with great abundance and come back to the land of Canaan, where Abraham was at the time God gave that revelation. And we would all like to just be able to jump right into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But there's a process, and every step in that process was ordained by God for a purpose. And so each step that we are looking at in Israel's journey from Egypt into Canaan is representative of different steps that you and I go through in our journey from sin into the fullness of salvation. The children of Israel, we saw, God brought them out to take them in. Likewise, God wants to take you and me out of darkness, out of the bondage of sin, and move us into the abundant life in Christ, and ultimately to take us into a heavenly inheritance, an abundance in heaven that is not just for a few years or even for a few centuries, but it's forever and ever. It's called eternal life. Now, we've come to part six, which is the part none of us would probably have wished or prayed for, but it's also an, a very important part of the whole story. Israel was warned in advance by God that once they got to the promised land, they had yet greater challenges waiting for them, namely seven nations greater and more powerful than they were that had to be conquered, defeated, 
and driven out. These were wicked nations. They were perverse nations. They were ungodly nations. Nevertheless, they had made Canaan their home. Very interesting picture. The land flowing with milk and honey. This place of abundance that God spoke to them so often about. Other people had made it their home. And these people we saw were practicing idolatry, perversion, homosexuality, all kinds of wicked, evil things that these seven nations were participating in. And once the children of Israel finished their 40 years in the wilderness, and Joshua enabled them to cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land, they began this process of conquering these seven nations. And we're looking at these nations one by one, um, not just for historical reasons, but more importantly, to try to understand from the Holy Spirit what this represents for you and for me. The message to the Christian church over and over in the New Testament is to overcome. Well, if you have no enemy, if you have no challenge, there's nothing to overcome. Overcoming implies there's something standing in your way that has to be defeated, has to be subjugated, it has to be moved out of the way. So, as Christians, we don't just walk into heaven without any conflict. We have enemies. We have challenges. We have great uh, mountains that have to be overcome. And I believe each one of these seven nations, as we've already seen, they represent very clearly different classes of evil, evil powers, evil spirits, if you will, that must be overcome. We've often referred to the passage in Ephesians 6, where Paul taught the Christians that we have a war on our hands. It's not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. It's not with your boss, your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbor, or somebody in church that you don't like. Our warfare, Paul says, is in heavenly places. It's against powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places. Heavenly places, there are enemies that have to be conquered and dislodged, just as there were enemies in Canaan that had to be overcome and dislodged. So, we are looking at the fifth of those seven nations, and we will hopefully be completing this fifth nation tonight. We're looking at the Girgashites, and the notes for this fifth nation actually begin on page 121, if you're following along in the outline notes. And we saw that there's not a whole lot mentioned in Scripture about the Girgashites, but we do know what the name means. The name in Hebrew very clearly means dwellers in clay soil. And we went into some depth on that. 
Obviously, it talks about an earthly focus, dwelling, speaking not just about walking through something, but actually making it your home. So the Girgashites represent dwelling in clay soil. We saw furthermore that clay soil is very heavy, it's very sticky, when it becomes wet, it becomes mud, mire, something very slippery, something that traps us and slows us down. <clears throat> we often use words like mired down or in the mire. And King David in Psalm 40 even spoke about his experience of God lifting him out of the miry clay. Spiritually, this miry clay speaks about sin and how it entraps us and how it tries to suck us back down to earth, into an earthly focus, an earthly existence. And we have been looking at the Girgashites as representing backsliding and slothfulness. The heavy, thick clay soil not only makes us slip and slide around, but it, it sucks us down. And we have an expression in English, stuck in the mud. We get bogged down. We get mired in the things of this world. And so the Girgashites speak about our tendency to get sucked back into an earthly life, sucked back into that old life of sin, and we get bogged down. We can't move for the Lord anymore. And so it speaks about spiritual lethargy, spiritual slothfulness, where we just sort of slow down, and start sliding back into our old habits, our old ways. And we have been looking at ways to overcome this Girgashite spirit, how to overcome this backsliding spirit that wants us to go back into an earthly focus, an earthly life. And we are going through four different steps, if you will, to overcome this Girgashite spirit. We ended last time completing the second one. I'll go through them again quickly. The first one we looked at was to seek God for a heavenly vision. Remember, dwelling in clay speaks about an earthly focus. The scriptures speak to us about having a heavenly mind, a heavenly vision. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, Paul said. Fix your eyes on what is not seen, because that is what is eternal, not on what is seen, because if you can see it, then guaranteed it's temporary. It's passing away. And the second point we looked at was go to the ant, we looked at numerous scriptures in the book of Proverbs that talk about the slothful and the sluggard using two animals, the sloth and the slug, to very graphically demonstrate this spirit of laziness where we just get stuck in the mud. 
We get bogged down. We're no longer running after God. We're no longer seeking the things of God with passion. And we've just kind of become lukewarm and, and apathetic. Well, the second thing we looked at is what it says there in Proverbs 6, to the sluggard, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. And of course, the ant is an example of diligence, hard work. They're not lazy creatures. And so, expanding that out, we took it to represent, look at examples, not just of the ant. The ant's a good place to start. Look at examples even in the animal kingdom of hard work, diligence, animals like the ant. We often talk about the busy beaver and so forth. But more importantly, look at examples of men and women in the Bible and even modern-day examples of men and women of God who were diligent, hard-working. They weren't lazy in their faith. And we ended last time looking at Paul's example. Paul was able to say, look at me, look at my life, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul was able to say to the Corinthian church, I worked harder than all of you. It wasn't me, but it was the grace of God in me. And Paul was very careful in his letters to the churches to make sure they understood grace is not an excuse for laziness. Let me, let me go through this again. Grace is not an excuse for laziness. A lot of people would use grace as an excuse, even to sin. Oh, we're all under grace. It's already paid for by the blood, so it doesn't matter what I do. Paul is very adamant about that in the book of Romans. Grace is not a license to go on sinning. He actually says there, Shall we go on sinning so that grace can abound? God forbid, he says. The correct understanding of grace is, God gives us grace to enable us to leave our life of sin and to begin to live a life of godliness and holiness, working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And certainly, God's grace in Paul's life was not an excuse for him to be lazy. God's grace in Paul's life was to encourage and enable him to work hard for the Lord. Let me read again, and if you're in the notes, we're now on page 124. Hebrews 6, verses 10 to 13. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work, note the word work, your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence. Key word, diligence. We saw that word in some of the references in the book of Proverbs. It's the exact opposite 
of slothfulness or laziness. Diligence in the scriptures we saw actually is translated to be quick, to be ready, to be in a hurry. It, it, it's not laying on the couch and waiting for somebody to do something for you. It's get up, be quick, be ready, be in a hurry. So he says here, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Notice that. We don't want you to be lazy, but we want you to imitate those who are diligent. And he goes on to use Abraham as an example of diligent faith. Faith that doesn't quit. Faith that doesn't become flabby and lazy and lukewarm and apathetic. We don't want you to become like that, he says. But we want you to imitate people who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, let's move on to the third of four points that we want to make here on ways that the Scripture teaches us to overcome backsliding and spiritual laziness. The third point, I believe, is very important is to realize how short time is. If you only have a little bit of time, then you're naturally going to be quick, ready, and in a hurry. That's what diligent means. If you think you have a lot of time, then you can take it easy now, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next year. We can take care of that. But if you know that time is very short, that understanding prompts you and me to act with diligence. Now, the New Testament is full of scriptures on this. We're just going to pick out a few. We as believers are told repeatedly that we must know and understand the time. We must understand where we are now in God's timetable, where we are on God's clock. The bottom line is, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And when you see that on the calendar, it helps to motivate and inspire you to keep pressing forward, to keep working for the Lord, and to not become lukewarm, lazy, indifferent, or slothful. Let's look at some scriptures that will help us. Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, and he says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. So, right away he says, time to wake up. There's no more time to sleep and slumber away. The hour has come for you to wake up 
from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We don't have time tonight to look at them, but there are numerous parables in the Gospels that speak to this whole matter of understanding the time, not sleeping when the bridegroom is about to come. And the idea is very simple. If we think we have have a lot of time, then we're going to take our time. And in one of the parables, Jesus said, certain of his servants thought that the master was delaying his coming, his return. They thought, oh, he's not going to come anytime soon. We have a lot of time before we need to worry about getting ready. And so they began to get drunk. They began to fight with each other, and they missed his return. Spiritually speaking, if you and I think, oh, Jesus isn't going to come this year. He's probably not even going to come for five or ten years. So I'm going to do my own thing. I'm just going to live a carnal, earthly, lukewarm life. And then, you know, in about five years, I'll start to take the Lord seriously. Then I'm really going to get on fire for God. And I'm going to really start, you know, preparing my life for his return. You will miss his return, most definitely. That's what the parables often speak about. When we develop that mindset of, I have a lot of time, so I'm going to take my time, that brings spiritual death, it brings spiritual lethargy. We must believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is at hand. Paul says, the day is almost here. In the book of Hebrews, it says, we see the day approaching. We should actually be seeing with each passing day, wow, the coming of the Lord is getting closer. We're not just in the last days. This is not just the season for his return. It's the final hour, John says. This is the last hour. And if you really believe we only have an hour or so left before the coming of the Lord, you're going to get busy. You're going to get stirred up. You're going to be quick, in a hurry, and ready. You're going to be diligent. Let's look at the passage in Hebrews 10, um, a little before where this begins, is where you find those scriptures about not... uh, stopping the assembling of yourselves together, but encouraging one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Then he continues in verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Remember that word rewarded, because that's going to be a key in the fourth and final step that we're going to look at. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, 
you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Notice again, emphasis on the shortness of time. In just a little while, he who is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, he will come and he will not delay. Verse 38, And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. That's a backslider. One who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back or backslide and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. I'll tell you one thing I've learned in my 41 years as a Christian. If you're not pressing forward, if you think you can just kind of park it for a while, take it easy, and just sort of be on standby, what actually happens is you start to drift backwards. You begin to shrink back, slide back, and the currents of this world actually begin to take you backward. So it's really not an option to say, you know, I'm just going to take a little break from going to church. I'm going to take a little break from prayer, from praise, from worship from seeking God, from fasting, from being in His Word. I'm just going to take a little time off. Very dangerous. And listen carefully to the words of the Apostle here again. He says, My righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. Those who shrink back, they're inviting destruction. Backsliding is very, very dangerous. And we saw that in Second Peter, where, where Peter talks about the pig going back to wallow in the mire and the mud of the old earthly sinful life. Very, very dangerous. So, we're told here, Because we have just a little while before Jesus returns, we must not shrink back, but we must persevere, press forward. Give it all you've got now, because the time is short. In John 9, verse 4, a scripture that is constantly in my mind, Jesus said, Night is coming when no one can work. Therefore, work while it is day. We are living, I believe, in the very final moments of light. We see darkness coming. It's all around us. It hasn't fully engulfed the world yet. But Isaiah prophesied a time when gross darkness would be coming upon the earth. Now, with greater and greater regularity, we're hearing about these mass shootings, executions, violence, unprecedented. We've never seen anything like 
the kind of wickedness and darkness that is invading the earth now. It's a sign for us. Night is coming. It hasn't come yet. We still have a little bit of daylight left. But if you know night is coming and you just have maybe an hour of daylight left, it's no time to be laying on the couch taking your ease. You know, now with the change of seasons and daylight savings, it gets dark before 5 p.m. here in Maryland. And if you want to do any outdoor work like raking leaves or cleaning up the garden, and you look at the clock and you realize, oh my gosh, it's already 4 p.m., you don't say, oh, I have till 9 o'clock tonight to get, to get all that work done. That was true back in July. But now in December, you don't have until 9 o'clock. Night comes at 5 p.m. So if you want to do some work, you have about one hour to do it between 4 and 5 p.m. So you better get out there and get busy because just a little bit of time before nightfall. You know, <clears throat> in Luke 10, Jesus said, there's a great harvest. He looked out and he saw the fields white for harvest, but he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest field. Send forth workers into the harvest field. God in these last days is looking for workers. Notice it did not say, pray to the Lord that he would raise up spectators. Pray to the Lord that he would raise up an army of critics. We have plenty of those in churches. Churches don't need spectators and critics. They need laborers. And my experience is, most of the spectators, they end up becoming critics, because they're not doing anything. They have a lot of idle time on their hands, and they end up looking around and saying, oh, I don't like the way the pastor preached on Sunday. I don't like the way so-and-so was dressed. I didn't like the music on Sunday. The service was too long. They prayed too much. I don't like these new people that are coming now. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, goes on and on and on. But you know what? If you're so busy doing the work of the Lord, you really don't have time for all of that. You don't have time to sit around and analyze and criticize because you are a worker. You know, it's good to make a decision. I'm going to work for the Lord. Yeah, I might see a few things that uh, don't seem right. Well, why not roll up your sleeves and get to work? Try to change some of those things that aren't right instead of sitting around criticizing. God is not calling critics or spectators. He's calling laborers into the harvest field. Look also, and this will complete this third point, because I want to move on to the final one, and I've got a lot of new stuff to add here that isn't in the outline. 2 Peter 3, verses 13 and 14. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, 
make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. There are a number of scriptures in the New Testament where, I know in the NIV it may be a little different in other translations, but in the NIV you find this expression, make every effort. That's pretty clear. It doesn't say, just try. It doesn't say, work a little bit at it. It says, make every effort. Put all you've got into it. That's what it means. Well, what he says is, we have a hope. We're looking forward to something. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Because of that, because we have that hope, and because it's coming very soon, Peter says, the logical response is to make every effort now to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him when He returns. Now, I want to move on to the fourth and final point here on how we can overcome this Gergeshite spirit, this backsliding, shrinking back, lazy, slothful spirit. The fourth point is keep pressing on. That's another way of saying what we just read, persevering. Keep pressing on making every effort, we've already looked at that also, but here's the reason why, another reason. There is a reward at the end. I want to talk about rewards for a little bit here, because I think a lot of Christians have a wrong understanding about this. And again, I think it comes down to a correct understanding of grace. I love God's grace. I love to preach on grace, sing about amazing grace. Grace is an amazing thing. God's grace is often defined as his unmerited favor. I didn't do anything to earn his favor which has come upon me and enabled me to be born again, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and to be his child. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, and it has nothing to do with works. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2.8. It's all by grace, it's not by our works. Praise God for that. But he goes on, once he's established what grace does, we're saved by grace, by faith, by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, we then are transformed. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says, we then become his workmanship created or formed in Christ to do good works. Ah. So I thought grace did away with works. Well, there are two kinds of works. There are dead works, 
Those are works that we do in our own sinful, fallen, self-righteous state where we're trying to earn God's favor. Those are dead works. But there's another class of works. They're called good works. Good works are the result of grace working in a person's life. Listen carefully to what, what I just said. Good works are the result of grace. Grace produces fruit. Grace produces an effect in our lives. Now let me read this whole passage uh, together. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's all a gift from God. We did nothing to deserve it. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So it doesn't do away with works. It changes the kind of works. Once we have been saved by God's grace, we become his workmanship, a new creation in Christ, created in Christ Jesus with one purpose, to work. That's what it says. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So not only did God save us by His grace, He already has works pre-prepared, prepared in advance, that He now wants us to walk into by grace. His grace is going to enable us to do those works, but work we must. Notice, grace does not give us an excuse or a license to be lazy. So this fourth point is very important. We keep pressing on. We work. We strive. We make every effort because there is a reward at the end. We who have been saved by God's grace, we did nothing for any of that. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's unmerited. But, there is another class of works called good works. These good works, listen to me carefully tonight, these good works earn rewards. The idea of a reward, I think we all understand. Not everybody gets a reward. The reward is earned. Not every baseball player gets a trophy. It's the team that wins the championship. And this concept is very clearly expressed in the New Testament. We are saved by grace, but by grace we work for rewards. Alright, i got to run through some scriptures here, because I can already sense some people on the other end of the line are sort of challenging or questioning, wait a minute, that sounds like legalism. That sounds like working for our salvation. No, I'm not talking about salvation. We're saved by grace and grace alone, but we're saved to work. All right, let me give a little 
background from the Old Testament, and then let's look at some New Testament scriptures that talk about this. The, the idea of persevering, pressing on, making an effort in our Christian life, it's not real popular in the modern church today. We basically, especially here in America, we have created a lazy church, a spectator church, where some are so lazy, they won't even get off the couch to go to church on Sunday. All they need to do is sit in front of the television, click on the internet, and they have church in their own living room. No effort at all required. Well, let's consider that for a minute. An Old Testament scripture that often speaks to me about this idea of pressing on, we have to keep pressing on, moving forward, is found in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> and I want to read from the New American Standard Version because I like the wording a little bit better. Hosea 6 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. Note especially verse 3. So, let us know let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Press on to know the Lord. I don't care how much you know the Lord. There's a whole lot more to know. I don't care where you or I have come in our spiritual journey, there's still a whole lot more ground ahead of us. No time to sit down, take our ease. We need to keep pressing on. Now, let's look at some New Testament scriptures. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul gets very personal. In the verses prior to this, he talks about his background in Judaism, how he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, he studied the Jewish religion inside and out. He was an expert on the law. But now notice what he says from Philippians 3. We'll read verses 10 to 14. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this. Now, just pause for a minute. I think everybody listening would agree, Paul was the greatest apostle that ever lived, perhaps. And even he in the later stages of his Christian life, is saying, I have not obtained all this yet. I've not arrived. So even Paul couldn't say, oh man, 
I've really arrived now. Look at how many churches I've started. Look at how many revelations God has given me. Look at how much of the New Testament I've written. I can sit down, eat, drink, be merry, and take my ease, because I have arrived. Just the opposite. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, and here it is, but I press on. Paul was pressing on, even in the last moments of his Christian life. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love that. Jesus first grabbed me, now I'm pressing on to grab hold of him. Verse 13, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, but no one ever said the Christian life was going to be a cakewalk. And if anyone listening to me tonight has been taught that it's all by grace, it's all free, you don't have to put any effort into this thing, just wait and float right up into heaven, you have been deceived. You have been taught falsely. The New Testament is very clear on this. If you are a true Christian, and you want to attain all that God has destined for you, you must overcome. That involves fighting, pressing, struggling, straining, persevering. You, you fill in the blank. I think you get the picture. I like this word Paul uses, straining toward what is ahead. When you're making every effort, you're sweating, your muscles are being strained, you're tired, you're weary, you feel like you're about to fall over and collapse, but something inside you tells you, keep going, keep pressing, keep going forward. And we're going to have those seasons in our Christian life where, quite frankly, the going gets tough. And we got a lot of mountains, we've got a lot of hills, we got a lot of challenges. Well, you know what they say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You just got to keep pressing on, you got to overcome whatever is standing in your way. Going backward, or quitting and sitting down in the mud, those are not options. We don't want to be those who shrink back and are destroyed. We want to be like Paul, pressing on, straining toward what is ahead. And I want to draw your attention in particular to what he said here in verse 14. And this is where we get into this concept of rewards. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Pressing on toward the goal, toward the finish line, if you will, to win the prize. And in several other places, the New Testament 
compares the Christian life to a race. You have lots and lots of runners in the race. They all line up at the starting line. They all start off together. They're not running just to have fun. They're running to win. You don't run to take second place. You run to win first place. Talk to any Olympic athlete. They never go to the Olympics to win silver. They go to win gold. They might win silver, and they'll be happy with that, but they wanted the gold. That's what Paul is saying. His attitude was, I want to win the prize. I want to be in first place. I want to achieve the highest and the best that God has for me. Go to Hebrews 12, where we also find this metaphor of running a race. Hebrews 12 We'll read verses 1 to 3, and then verses 14 to 15. Hebrews 12 from verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 14. Here it is again. Make every effort. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the, see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. He's talking about the grace of God in the same breath that he's saying, make every effort. Don't fall short of the grace of God so that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, when you run a race, you want to get rid of any excess baggage, any weights, any hindrances, anything that's going to slow you down. Well, in a physical race that's true. In our spiritual race, it's also true. What he's saying here, throw off, get rid of anything that is going to hinder you in your Christian race so that you can run it with perseverance. Notice also what it says in verse 1. Run the race marked out for us. This race has already been marked out. The sidelines, the finish line, the direction, all of that has been pre-planned by God. All he tells us to do is run the race. How do you do it? Fix your eyes on the finish line, on the goal. 
Paul said, I want to win the prize. The prize is actually Christ Jesus himself. He is the finish line. A runner fixes his eyes on the finish line, not on the runners around him. He doesn't even look at the other runners. He keeps looking to the finish line. That's where he wants to go. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher. He's the finish line, the finisher of our faith. He's also our example. He ran his race. He endured the cross. He scorned all the shame, all the rejection, all the trials and sufferings because he was looking to the joy set before him. Therefore, make every effort. Now, this is not found in your notes, if you are following in the notes, but I want to quickly end with some different scriptures that all speak about this concept of running to win a race, working to earn rewards. And again, these are good works, working because of God's grace in our lives that we may attain and achieve certain rewards that he's promised for us. Let's go first, since we're already talking about running races, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and read from verse 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, not everyone is going to get the prize. Nevertheless, he says, Run in such a way as to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The New Testament speaks about crowns. Crowns are given to those who earn them. Listen to me very carefully. Crowns are given to those who earn them. They're not passed out to everyone. These are for those who have run hard, who have won the prize, who have worked hard. Crown is a reward. In the Olympic Games, they run to get an earthly crown that's going to fade away very quickly. But he says, we Christians do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Notice in all of these scriptures, running a race, um, it doesn't say walking. It certainly doesn't say sitting down. It doesn't say sleeping. It says running. Running is the opposite of laziness, slothfulness, backsliding. The New Testament is calling us to a race. You run in a race. You don't walk. 
You don't take your ease. You make every effort when you're running in a race. And the reason you're running a, a race is to win. Run to win the prize. Now, everybody knows Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? That's our favorite part, but there's more to it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He is, that He exists, and, here's the part I want to emphasize, He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. King James says he, He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Notice the connection between reward and diligence. And a lot of you have heard me do this before. I get more out of the scriptures sometimes when I try to reverse it around and look at the opposite. Notice what this does not say. It does not say it's possible to please God no matter what you do. Not what it says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So there's only one way to please God, that's by faith. And it does not say God rewards everybody. It does not say that. It does not say He rewards anybody and everyone just because of His grace. No. He rewards those who are diligent. He rewards those who earnestly, diligently seek Him. They make an effort to seek God. They put in time to pray, to worship God, to seek God, to study His Word, to get together with other Christians for fellowship and for prayer and for worship. They make an effort. There's a reward for those who make an effort. In Matthew chapter 16, here's what Jesus said about rewards. Matthew 16 and verse 27. Matthew 16, 27. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. That's not legalism. That's the way it is. Rewards are according to what you and I have done. And these are good works that were done as a result of God's grace transforming us and equipping us. Very quickly, let's look at a couple of other passages because I want to finish with the Girgashites tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 starting at verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and onwards. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And I'm adding this word, nevertheless, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. 
each will be rewarded according to his own labor. doesn't say according to grace. It says according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow what? Workers. We are God's field. We are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. Yes, it's by grace, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Note the connection between work and reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What's in question here is not his salvation. He's saved by grace. What's in question is the rewards he will earn. Quickly, go to Ephesians chapter 6. There are numerous other scriptures like this. I just want to give you enough so that you see. I didn't pull some verse out of the hat to try to prove something here. This is a clear concept in the New Testament. Saved by grace, grace changes us, enables us to do good works, so that we can be rewarded for our labor, for the works that we do. Ephesians 6, verses 7 and 8. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know, God, God through Paul had taught them this, so he could say, you know this, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. You know that. God is going to reward everyone for whatever good he does. In Second John, <clears throat> the second epistle that John wrote, Second John, there's just one chapter, and verse 8. Second John, verse 8, here's what it says. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now, I've heard people say, Oh, I'm not working for any rewards. I'm just working because I love Jesus. Well, that sounds good, but that's not biblical. Yeah, we want to serve Jesus because we love him, but he's promised rewards for our work. So why not tell it accurately, I'm working because he's going to reward me at the end. I'm running because I want to win the prize. I want to win the race. Okay, let's finish this with one last scripture 
in the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, literally almost the last verse. In Revelation chapter 22, these are the words of Christ himself. Let's hear what Jesus has to say on this subject. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone equally. That's not what it says. We would like for it to read that way, but that's not what it says. I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. According to what he has done. Rewards are earned. They're based on works. And when you and I really get a hold of this in our heart and mind and spirit, it will cure us of all spiritual laziness, sitting on our hands and doing nothing for the Lord or for His kingdom. It'll stir us up, because the more I do for the Lord, the more He's going to reward me at the end. It motivates us. It stimulates us out of that lethargy, slothfulness, so forth. So, recapping all of this, the Girgashites speak about backsliding, getting stuck in the mud, slowing down in our Christian life, and becoming spiritually slothful, spiritually lazy. We're basically not doing anything for the Lord. We're just kind of taking a free ride. And very often, we use grace as an excuse for that laziness. Oh, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do anything now. I'm just waiting till Jesus comes and he's going to take me up. As I, as I hope you've seen in all these scriptures tonight, that's not biblical. Yes, we're saved by grace so that now we can serve him wholeheartedly. We can make every effort to accomplish these good works that he has foreordained for each and every one of us. I don't know about you, I want to be used by God. I love it when God uses me and he accomplishes his work through me. It's all by his grace, it's by his power, it's by his anointing, but I get a reward for it. I get a reward in eternity, but in one sense I also get rewarded in this life because it brings joy, it brings encouragement into our lives when we know that we've done something to help someone else, we've done something that put a smile on God's face, and we can hear him already whispering from heaven, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray tonight that God can arouse any and all of us out of our slumber, out of our sloth, out of our laziness. Let's pray that God can stir us up in these last days, believing that time is short, work while it is day, night is coming when no man can work. There's still a lot of work to do, my friends. 
There's a lot of preaching to be done. There's a lot of praying to be done. There's a lot of serving, a lot of helping to be done. There is no excuse for anyone, anyone, sitting in the church and saying, Oh, I don't have anything to do. Nobody asked me to do anything. Don't wait for somebody to ask you. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Don't wait for somebody to tell you to clean the church. Clean the church. If you see some dirt on the ground, pick it up. If you see a soul in need or hungry or in trouble, don't wait for somebody else. Help them. Do what God has enabled you to do, and you will be blessed, and you will be rewarded at the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your Holy Spirit, the spirit of encouragement that's here tonight to motivate us, to arouse us, to stir us up. Lord, to realize that the time is short. These are the last days. Gross darkness is closing in on the earth. And we have just a narrow window of time left in which we can preach, pray, sing, prophesy, serve, help, give, do whatever it is that you've prompted and prepared us to do. God, you are looking for workers, not spectators. You're calling us to make every effort, to press in, to strain forward, to achieve that prize, that goal that's at the finish line. Lord, I thank you for encouraging us. I thank you for giving us new vigor to finish the race with joy, to cross the finish line in victory. Lord, that we can be more than conquerors through Christ. You've called us to be overcomers. And Lord, we want to overcome this Gergeshite spirit. We want to break any spirit of lethargy, apathy, indifference, slothfulness off of our lives. That we can rise up and serve the Lord with our whole heart, with all of our strength. That we can press to that finish line and like Paul, to win the prize that you have called us for. God bless each and every one on the phone, on the internet, listening to this recording. We pray that they would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you tonight for your presence, for your anointing, for your power at work in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.